Welcome to the Spirit Restored Podcast. This is where the curiosities of spiritualism meet the belief systems of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This podcast is only for those with an open mind. Join Ken Adams on his quest to find higher planes of spiritual experience. Welcome to the Spirit Restored Podcast today. I have a great episode. Now, when I was young, my dad would tell me stories about his mom and how she converted to the church. One day she was reading in the Bible and she was reading in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. And she was reading about giants that walk the earth. And these giants would come to the earth and, and, you know, do the work of God or not and whatever is in the Bible. Right. But she's sitting in her chair and she's reading the Bible about the giants that walk the earth. And then she gets a knock on the door and she goes and opens the door and in walk two seven foot LDS missionaries. In fact, I even met these guys at one point. Now, the interesting thing is my, my grandma's daughter, my dad's sister, her name is Debbie. After they had joined the church, she was walking through a store and she was so excited about it. I mean, she was probably very little at the time. She maybe was like three or four or something like that. They had just joined the church maybe a year or two ago. And she's going through this, uh, this building, right? This church. And she's yelling at the top, sorry, not this church, this grocery store. And she's yelling at the top of her lungs, we're Mormon. And she's so excited about that. And, you know, my aunt, she's always been a very spiritual person, a very, uh, you know, looking for how angels work in her life, how God works in her life and, and all of these things and looking for that. So was my grandma. She was very spiritual, very much looking at life being more than what we think it is right now, more than what the reality we just perceive in the moment. And one night when my dad, my dad happens to be 10 years older than his sister, his sister was in her room crying and crying and crying. And she slept next to my dad in, in a adjacent room. And in that house, since my grandpa, he was a real estate agent, he would get a new house every few years and always one with some new features. And one of those new features in that house was an intercom system. And so there was an intercom system that my dad could use in his room and communicate with his sister in the other room. And so his sister, Debbie, was crying, crying, crying at night, and she wouldn't stop crying. And my dad thought, how do I help her stop crying? So he hits the button on the intercom system, and he goes, Debbie, Debbie, it's an angel. And she looks up, and she's like, what? What was that? In fact, years later... When I was a youth, a teenager, I remember going to visit my aunt, or I can't remember, maybe she went to visit us. I can't remember what it was, but we ended up going to church together. And while we were at church, my aunt got up to the pulpit up at the front and she started telling this amazing story about when she heard an angel when she was a small child, right? And I could look at my dad, he was very captivated in what she's saying. And my brother was captivated. Everyone was captivated. And my dad, though, was 
seemed to be a little bit disturbed about the story that she was telling, despite being very captivated, right? And I remember this was a time at a, as a teenager that I wanted to hear these kinds of stories anyway, because I wanted to know really what was the benefit to me as why I should go to church. I thought, you know, if my parents didn't tell me to go to church, would I even go? Would I even get up in the morning and do it? Do I even want to do it? In fact, my son says that already. He's like five years old and he's like, I don't want to go to church. And I say, don't you love primary? He says, no, primary is lame. What I'm getting at here, right, is really when you think of church, I want you to imagine being at church and getting the best experience out of it. And I mean, have you, any of you ever felt guilty for not wanting to be at church like I was as a, as a youth or not wanting to fulfill your calling or for not living up to the standards of the LDS church? What if instead you felt free to do whatever you wanted while also experiencing miracles every day? Even more, you could enjoy being at church while joyfully being yourself. Yeah. You could be totally yourself and also strengthen the relationships with those around you. Would that be interesting to you? I think it would, right? Like not everybody feels that way. And this really, like if you think about church, if it really was full of joy, full of love, full of miracles every time you went, you would go every week, right? And you would want to be there. Now, this isn't the experience for everyone. In fact, I don't know how many people this is the experience for. I think most people go to church because they think it's the right thing to do or because they think God wants them there. I remember my mission president saying, you know, he would interview people that I had ready for baptism and he would ask them, are you committed to going to church every single Sunday for the rest of your life? Is what he would ask them. And if they said yes, then he would say, okay, you can be baptized. If said no, then he most likely wouldn't have them be baptized because he wanted to get that level of commitment. Now, I don't even know if I'm that committed necessarily to be like, you know, no matter what's going on, I'm, I'm going to go to church. There could be times I'm traveling or other family situations or whatever that might take some precedent over church. And I don't think it's about necessarily that commitment to going to church that's important. I think there's other things that are even more important. And before I get to that, though, I want to define what church is. Now, there's multiple definitions of the word church in modern English, and there's different ways that you can say what it means. One, it can be used as a place of worship, yeah, a place you go to, a building that you go into and you worship God. Another name or another definition it can have is a denomination. Yeah, This could be a branch of a religion or what type of religion you're in. Yeah, so if it's within Christianity, it could be the Catholic Church, right, as a denomination, or the uh, Mormon Church, right, which is now the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That would be another denomination, or the Lutheran Church. Or it can also be used to talk about Christianity as a whole, the church, right, of Christianity in, in a more universal way, yeah? So even before these definitions, though, there were the ancient definitions, the ones that Jesus used, and the people before him and the Hebrews before that. And so the ancient Greek word ecclesia, like the book Ecclesiastes, right? Ecclesia, which has been translated in modern times to mean church, actually means those who are called to assemble. 
And traditionally, it was used in a political sense and used more like saying town hall, right? You've probably heard that term before. We have a town here with a town hall. And the people go and gather every once in a while to give their opinion on how the town should be run. So originally in Greece, this word was to mean like calling a town hall, calling an assembly, having a discussion between people. And this is where they would come and discuss important decisions. And it was not a religious term. It was a political term. It was something to just describe that gathering. Now, the interesting thing about this word is it only shows up twice in all of the four Gospels. In fact, it only shows up in two of the four Gospels. So when Jesus Christ is talking, he only mentions it twice. One is with Peter when he says that upon his rock, he will build his church, right? And and those are one of the only mentions of church. And we have, you know, in the LDS church, it's like the huge thing about what makes our church a church, right? Is because it's built upon the same principles, gospel, doctrine, structure, organization of the original church of Jesus Christ, even though church was only mentioned twice in all of the four gospels. Now it is mentioned a lot more in the rest of the new Testament through Paul. Paul talks about it a lot. It's mentioned in, in Acts as well. So it's not like it's absent from the New Testament. It's just not so talked about in the Gospels of Jesus Christ. So let's talk about the early Christianity history and the word church and what church was like back in early Christianity. So back in the days of Christianity, the saints in Rome would not have known the word ecclesia since they spoke Latin, they probably would have been more familiar with the word sanctorum or saints to define themselves when they gathered. So even just the word ecclesia wasn't really used in Rome where Rome had most of the saints thanks to Paul, right? Paul had a lot of converts that were in Rome and they were practicing Christians there and they probably called themselves saints. So, I mean, if you're looking at the church now, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, right? They called themselves saints, and that's how they gathered. Now, let's talk about what these gatherings were like. They weren't anything like what church might be to you today. The gatherings were often very small, between five and ten people, and sometimes, sometimes up to 20 people. In fact, in Rome, a lot of times they would meet underground because they had a lot of persecution. In fact, the emperor Nero nearly wiped out Christianity from Rome, uh, very violently wiped it out. Now, they only gathered in small groups and sometimes up to 20. They did not resemble modern church worship at all. It was more like a supper, more like the last supper that Christ held before his crucifixion. Now, large church gatherings like Catholic mass didn't even begin until the third century, near the end of the third century, right? So it was always small gatherings of people. And you think of, you know, Jesus Christ before his crucifixion. Think of that. That was church, right? It was that kind of assembly, that kind of gathering. And so the modern day word church, though, comes from Kiriakos Oikos. And it comes, that's, that comes from central Turkey, from a Christian group. And it started in the fifth century. And it had a major influence on the Gothic translation of the Bible. So the Gothic meaning a very Germanic way right? So in, in German, it's Kirche, means church, right? And in Old English, it was Kirk. So 
house of the Lord is what this original term is. And if you know that term in LDS context, we talk about that as being a temple, right? It's the house of the Lord. Now, this is different from Ecclesia, right? That's not the same thing. The house of the Lord does not mean that. This has more reference to the actual edifice, the actual place that people gather at and have these meetings. So really, church is more like the location, according to these, this original definition. Now, let's look at the Book of Mormon, which is doctrine, you know, how the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints looks at church. There's a lot of mention of church in the Book of Mormon. Unfortunately, we can't make any linguistic assumptions because we don't have the original text. We don't know what word they were using in Reformed Egyptian. Right? There's many verses from Nephi, for example, about the great and abominable church that will cover the world in the last days, as well as mention of the church of the firstborn, which is the church of Jesus Christ. Now, when Nephi's talking about this in, in his books, right, he's saying it in a way that describes the great and abominable church basically as any other belief system or ideology that isn't aligned with Jesus Christ. So it's not really being talked about like a location that you go to. And missionaries in the past have made mistakes by saying, oh, Nephi's talking about the Catholic Church. Well, no, he's not. He's not talking about the Catholic Church. And to say that the Catholic Church is the great and abominable church, I don't think there's evidence to say that that would be true. I think it's more likely anything that takes someone away from the teachings of Jesus Christ would be the great and abominable church. The ones that actually, the principles and beliefs and teachings that lead people astray from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that could happen within the LDS church. That could happen outside the LDS church. It actually doesn't matter the actual location or organization in this context in which Nephi is describing it. And perhaps in the Book of Mormon, the best de description of church is found in Moroni 6. And it says, And after they had been received unto baptism, and they were wrought upon and cleansed by the power of the Holy Ghost, they were numbered among the people of the Church of Christ, and their names were taken, that they might be remembered and nourished by the good word of God, to keep them in the right way, to keep them continually watchful unto prayer, relying alone upon the merits of Christ, who was the author and finisher of their faith. So it's this idea to keep records, right? To have a baptism and to write down their names, to number them among the people of Christ, to stay organized, to pray together, to rely upon the merits of Christ, who's the author and finisher of their faith. Now it goes on in verse five, and the church did meet together off to fast and to pray and to speak one with another according to the welfare of their souls. So how often do you do that when you go to church? Do you fast? Do you pray? Do you speak one with another concerning your welfare, right? That is the point really of church. Now, it also says this, and they did meet together oft to partake of bread and wine in remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this sounds more like the Last Supper, right? Like what we describe church is in the New Testament, in the Gospels of Jesus Christ, in the early days of Christianity. Now, here's, here's an interesting set of verses, though, that I think has gone into the LDS Church, and we may have focused on this more than the prior verses when it comes to church. And it says in verse 7, And they were strict to observe that there should be no iniquity among them. And whoso was found to commit iniquity, 
and three witnesses of the church did condemn them before the elders. And if they repented not and confessed not, their names were blotted out, and they were not numbered among the people of Christ. But as oft as they repented and sought forgiveness with real intent, they were forgiven. And their meetings were conducted by the church after the manner of the workings of the Spirit and by the power of the Holy Ghost. For as the power of the Holy Ghost led them, whether to preach or to exhort or to pray or to supplicate or sing, even so it was done. So here we have a verse in verse 7, which talks about condemning people that commit iniquity and basically removing them from the community if they're not repenting of what they're doing. Now, I think it back in those times in the Book of Mormon, if you think of Alma the Younger, right? He was someone that was part of the church, you could say, and he was also trying to bring it down and causing iniquity. I think at those times, they were a lot more harsh. I don't think that we need to be so harsh anymore at church. I think that we can just assume that everybody's seeking to repent and seeking forgiveness, and we can treat them that way no matter what they've done throughout the week. In fact, I think that from my conversations of why people have left the church or stopped going to church is because they feel judged. They feel like they can never be good enough for anybody at church. So they kind of self-eliminate out of that. And I really think that we can get out of this mentality. I know it's here in the Book of Mormon. I think we can still say, you know, instead of saying there should be no iniquity among them, I think we can say we can focus on having a lot of faith. We can focus on repentance. We can say repentance is great, right? That faith is wonderful, yeah? And continue to say, you know, as long as you're repenting and having forgiveness, you're always going to be forgiven by Jesus Christ. And I think that's true no matter what. So perhaps the best definition of all of LDS scripture, right, in, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it's found in the Doctrine and Covenants in, ver- in chapter 10, verse 67. And it says, Behold, this is my doctrine. Whoso repenteth and cometh unto me, the same is my church. I think that is the most simple and profound definition of what church is. Anybody who's gathering to come unto Christ with a repentant heart and comes to him, that's the church, right? It's not the building. It's not the organization. It's none of that. It's those people that truly want to repent and come to Christ. You're at church. So even people that have left the meetings of church or the building of church and don't go anymore, if they are repenting and coming to Christ, they're still at church. They haven't left. Yeah. Now, the reason why I think it's such a great definition It's because it encompasses the true meaning of gathering as echoed in the scripture of Matthew chapter 10, verse 20, which says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now, this is the power of Jesus Christ, right? When we start uniting ourselves together with our faith, with our hopes, with our hearts, right? And even this definition of Zion, which I really think the purpose of church is to build Zion, in my own opinion, right? Is to be knit of one heart and one mind. When you're gathered together in Christ's name, even two or three, right? There he is in the midst. And when Jesus is there, that's church, right? So when you invite Christ in your life, you're creating church. Now, this is why... I think it's so powerful that in the recent years in the LDS church that we've had an emphasis and focus on having church at home. And even before the pandemic, we were instructed to start having church at home. We said, do come follow me. The prophet told us to do come follow me at home, which I think was very prophetic. Now, this is even closer to what church actually is. 
being in your family, I imagine in those early days of Christianity that they were mostly family meetings, perhaps parents and children or brothers and sisters. I would imagine that it was mostly that. And even with two or three gathered in the name of Christ, there he is. That's church. So going over all this history, going over all of this information from LDS doctrine to New Testament, right? It's very curious how all the history is and how did we get to where we are? And I think it brings up, you know, I think that the combination of all these scriptures and linguistic history of the word church, as well as the final definition found in Doctrine and Covenants, gives us a good picture of what I think church actually is. And it brings me to this question, though, because I think that what this history is and what it defines in Doctrine and Covenants isn't really actually how people look at church and their relationship with church. It brings up this question, what relationship should we have with church? And is the church that we're going to actually the church of Christ? Now, I'm not saying this as in, is it the restored church of Christ or not? I'm saying, when you think of church, are you actually going to church? Or are you just going to a building? Are you just going to an organization? Because church is not the building. It's not the organization. It's an assembly of Christ. And when you assemble everybody together with one heart and one mind coming to Christ, that's church. Yeah, It has nothing to do with the brick and mortar of the building. It has nothing to do with the organization. It has nothing to do with the records. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with hearts coming together that are truly penitent and wanting to come to Christ, coming together and having miracles in their life. That, to me, is what church is. Now, ask yourself this. What relationship should I have with church? And there are definitions like in the Book of Mormon that people should be kicked out if they commit iniquity, like what I read earlier in one of those scriptures. In LDS history, there have been many excommunications, as have been in other churches. I mean, the Catholic Church did the Inquisition, right, at one point, which was a terrible chapter in Christian history, right? And and the Catholic Church has moved beyond that, and so has Christianity as a whole. So Christianity hasn't been perfect in this, right? And it's important, though, to stop looking at the organization and the buildings and the people within that organization as the definition of church, because then we misconstrue what our true relationship should be with church. In fact, I would even drop the label altogether that you belong to a church. Now, the reason why I'll get to why I say that first thing I want you to think of how would Christ want your relationship to church be? Look at the functionality of the church through the eyes of Christ. What do you think he would want your experience to be? Yeah, really think about that. What would he want your experience to be? Would he want you to experience more love and a real change of heart as you gather with others? Would he want you to exercise and combine true faith with others to experience miracles? Would he want you to feel the feeling of being totally free to be yourself, no matter what you have done or said throughout the week? Would he want your church experience to contribute to your mental, emotional, physical, intellectual, and financial well-being? Some of you experience that at church while others do not. What is the difference, right? What might prevent someone from having those miracles as they gather with other people? Now, Christ ultimately wants us to learn what it means to be truly free, spiritually, emotionally, physically, financially, intellectually. Yeah. 
This is so we can become immortal and eternal like him. So how can you have a more powerful church experience? And I think one of the best ways to do this is to recognize that you don't belong to the church. The church can't force you to make actions. It can't force you to make decisions. It can't force you to live a life in a certain way. It can't force you to enjoy church. If the feeling you get at church is currently binding rather than freeing, then you can reevaluate the role church plays in your life, right? You can even go back to this question of, am I even actually going to church or am I just going to a building in an organization? In fact, not only do you not belong to a church, you also don't even belong to Christ and you don't belong to God. Now, these are really bold statements, especially in a Christian context. And the reason why it's true is because you have the power to make your own choices. You were created by God, but he's given you the choice to go to him or not go to him. And he doesn't own that choice. You own that choice. Now, when you realize you don't even belong to God, he can't keep you with him. He can't make you go to him. He can't make you to be at church. You don't belong to Christ. He can't make you repent. He can't make you have faith. You don't belong to them unless you choose to right? That is the choice that you could have. So if you're in the church and you feel like the feeling of belonging is like you're a possession of the church, right? It's like people are looking at how you're living your life, what you're supposed to be doing, and if you're doing it, and they're judging you if you don't like church or things like that, that doesn't matter. None of that matters. In fact, the issue was never about church. It was never about church. The issue has always been about giving yourself permission to live life in a way that you want to live life. In all reality, sometimes that looks differently for every person, and it doesn't always align with church standards. Now, this may mean that the way you want to live life is outside of the church, outside of the walls of the church, outside of the organization, and to give that an experience. That might be that. And it's something that I think that's a personal decision for every person is that you have to understand your choice to be at church or not in the physical walls, right? In the, in the organization, that's your choice. And you may find that you simply, you may also find that you simply want to change how you experience life within the church, right? Because you're not, you don't belong to a church. You belong to you. You belong to your life. You belong to your results. You belong to the joy that you're creating. You belong to the love that you're creating. You are creating a God is really what you're doing. And you want to ask yourself, what kind of God am I creating? Now, the church doesn't restrict how you're allowed to live. It is your choice to live life. And more importantly than being perfectly righteous is to learn to live your life. Paradoxically, when someone is truly living in a way that is authentic to them, they naturally want to have more miracles in their life and they want to discover more power within themselves and with other people to get more of what they want. They start to learn that when they gather their faith with the faith of other people, that that faith is actually multiplied and that is scientifically proven. They've done studies before where people gather together and they pray together about crime being reduced in their city and crime reduces in their city because there's multiple people doing that. This is scientifically proven. This is not even something that's out there anymore. Like scientists can prove this is true. Now, when you really want those miracles 
and you really want to live life and you want to get the results that you want, even miraculous results, even results that are like, hey, I've been thinking about my potential and I know I can live more of my potential. There's something beyond me that I haven't explored yet. There's so much more success that I haven't given myself yet. There's so much more joy that I haven't given myself yet. When you lean into that and you say, what is my life? How am I going to define my life? That's when you start finding it. That's when you start looking at church differently, right? This is when church experience becomes valuable. It only becomes valuable when you can truly feel your own value and worth. And your own value and worth has nothing to do with church standing and everything to do with how, how much you can perceive your own value through the eyes of God. Can you look with God and see you and see your own value? Can you look through the eyes of God and say, how much does God love me? And can I feel that through his eyes? Can you look at yourself and say, how valuable am I? How valuable is my life? And is it worth having blind obedience? Because really, some people have this thing. I'm really, what I'm talking about is blind obedience, right? It's like you're looking at the church, the rules, procedures, all that kind of stuff, and you're just doing what it tells you to do without knowing how it's benefiting you. When you look through the eyes of God, you can see two things. You can say, this is how church could benefit me, and this is why I'm worth being benefited, right? This is can be an extreme gift to your life. When you go to church with the heart of, hey, this is my neighbor. Yeah, this is my brother. This is my sister. We're going to church to make miracles. We're going to church to knit our hearts together. We're going to church to cause the mountains to move. We're going to church to grow our faith, to have more repentance, to become more like God. When that becomes the focus, and I know you've been to Relief Society or Elder Scorm, and that's not always the focus. When that does become the focus, which, by the way, it could start with you. You could be the one that raises your hand and says, I want to have miracles in my life. How can we do that together? How can we pray together? I have something I really want to pray about. I know that Jesus Christ told us we can be healed of all sorts of things. I want to pray together and I want to fast together. I want to join together and have miracles in the church. When you become the person that creates that, then church becomes valuable to you. And it has nothing to do with the building or the organization. It has everything to do with the paradigm that exists in your mind. And that shift of paradigm is what creates value in the church. And when you do that, you begin to see yourself as full of love, full of joy. Your life becomes full of miracles. Yeah, this is the hope. In fact, I've, you know, I go to church now and I think a couple things. One thing I think is, are, am I surrounded by people that know the truth, right? Because if, if I feel like someone doesn't really know the actual power and truth of the gospel, then I'll raise my hand and I'll talk about it, right? The second thing is, are we actually pursuing miracles? What is actually going to improve everybody's life in our community, not just in the walls of the church, like the church building, but how do we expand church outside the walls? How do we make it that we are all praying for something important and powerful? Now, this is really where I've come now. I, in the last 10 years, my definition of church and how I view church and why I go to church has changed drastically. I mean, there's, if you knew some of the things that went on in my life around church, you would ask me, why do you even go to the building? Well, the thing is, it's not about the building. 
It's about me. It's about my life. It's about my results and what I want to get out of going to church. So when I was a teenager, right, I had those questions like, why do I go here? Like people are not always so nice. They're not always happy to see me. A lot of them are happy. I don't always feel the spirit. And um, it's just kind of like a lot of hard stuff to do, right? Like living, living in a way that, you know, is obedient. It can be difficult for a teenager, right? And also pleasing everybody that's there. It feels like just to go to the temple, you got to please like three people, right? And, and I had to decide, you know, what really was the reason for me. And by the way, if those of you that are listening, you're like, I don't, I don't really go to church or it's not really for me. That's fine. You're in that point in your journey and whether or not you come back doesn't really matter. The question is, are you living life? Because if you're outside of the walls of the church, right, you're outside of the organization, you could still be going to church by just going to Christ. And that's the reality. That's the definition in the LDS scripture, right? Now, my aunt, when she got up with that testimony, right, my dad was squirming there in his chair and he leaned over to me and he whispered in my ear. He said, Kenny, I've never told anybody this and I've never told your aunt this, but what she's telling that angel that was talking to her, that was actually me. I was the one speaking to her through the intercom system. And at that night in the intercom system, I told her I was an angel. And that as an angel, I tell you to calm down. I, tell, I told her to fall asleep. I told her to stop crying. And when she spoke to me, she said, okay, yeah, I'll do that. And she was very happy and she went to bed. He's like, I didn't think anything of it. And now I know after... 20, 30, 40 years, I can't remember how long ago that was necessarily, that she's in this testimony meeting, giving a testimony. My dad was just feeling awful, like he did something wrong. Now, I don't think he necessarily did. I just think it is what it is, right? She's She perhaps actually has exercised more faith in her life because of that experience, regardless of whether or not it was a real angel. And I think that the faith is really the real principle there, right? She's She's actually looking for, for miracles and she can continue to walk around and say, we're Mormon if she wants to. I mean, that's kind of a, a funny saying. I really, personally, I don't really walk around and yell that anymore. I think what's more important to yell out is I'm happy. I'm joyful. I have love, right? I'm getting what I want out of life and I'm enjoying doing it. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of this all just started when, when my grandma opened that door and saw those seven foot missionaries, she knew right then she was like, okay, giants are walking the earth. And now they knocked on my door and man, they are that tall. They're huge. This guy, Gene, his name's Gene Nielsen was his name. And he worked at BYU. And when I was at BYU, I went to interview for a job so I could work with him and uh, then I got to know him and everything. But one of his sons was like seven foot one. They had these like rocking chairs that were humongous, right? It was really cool to meet the people that met my grandma, right? And that, that they were missionaries and they're the ones that walked in with that scripture. It was a very powerful thing. Well, thank you for listening to this today. And what I would like you to do, if you're listening to this, check out the YouTube channel that I have. If you liked this podcast, if you like the content that's in it, subscribe to the YouTube channel as well and refer some friends over there as well. I mean, 
people, when they listen to this podcast, they get a lot of clarity and understanding, which they might not have had before. And that's why people refer the podcast to other people. So thank you for listening today. And we will speak next week. Have a wonderful Sunday. Ken loves to get feedback from his audience. Send him a private message or write a review so that he can discuss topics that are most relevant to your spiritual experience. Thank you for listening today and remember to join next week.